The number one eight five 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 Doctor Lou one eight five 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 D R L O U. Doctor Payne Show. You need to send us an email. Contact it is info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Lou, we're back here. We'll get to our uh, guest, a special guest this week on the show. First, we always start off with some cases that have come through your clinic. We call it the week that was. Yep. How's it uh, How's it going, John? Good, pal. I'm, I'm all right. How are you doing? Very good. Um, yeah, one very interesting case that uh, I wanted to talk about. It wasn't necessarily this week. It was actually a few weeks ago. We had a young um, amateur golfer who came in and uh, pretty good shape. He's uh, 22 years old. He's been playing golf for about seven years. He came in because he threw out his back really bad, came in in a full antalgic posture, bent forward. And for our listeners who don't know what that means, he's essentially not standing straight up. He's walking in, he's bent over. The body will naturally do that to try to take some pressure off the area of the disc herniation. And it was completely obvious as soon as I saw him what had happened. Um, Based on how acute he was, I knew that there wasn't going to be much that we were going to do in our office. So I referred him back to his family doctor, uh, who I actually have a good relationship with. The family doctor expedited an MRI. And based on that MRI, we were able to see that there was a very severe disc herniation that was only likely going to respond to surgery. Uh, So he had to eventually go for surgery, uh, very minimally invasive surgery, but he did need to go for it. And as soon as the surgery was done, within a few days, he was back standing up straight again. We have been doing rehab Mm -hmm. with him. That's why uh, I've been seeing him lately more in the last few weeks for the rehabilitation component. So there's definitely rehab that has to follow the surgery. Uh, But definitely this was a case where surgery was absolutely needed in order to get him better. Golfer, right? Pulling old Freddie Couples with a bad yeah, back. Yeah, I've played golf with him a few times actually as well. He's also a friend of my brother's and uh, he's he's an awesome golfer, hits it really long. So there's a lot of torque going through that low back. And I mean, when you actually get down to it and you look at the anatomy of the low back, your low back's not really meant to I twist. was going to ask you, what is it in golf that does that? Yeah, it's it's... I mean, you can see it when you've looked at golfers ever since the Tiger Woods era where people have become these long hitters. There's a lot more torque and rotation going through the lower back. And if we actually were to strip away the anatomy of the low back and look at the orientation of the facet joints, which are the joints that cause Mm -hmm. movement, they are actually orientated in such a way that prevents rotation. Nice. So as you're going through that stuff, so really the low back's not meant to be uh, overly rotated. And so, you know, when you do go through these types of activities that require that, that amount of torque and rotation through the low back, then injuries can happen. Now, obviously, when you look at someone like Tiger Woods, that's why these guys are in such good shape nowadays, too, because uh, core strength does help to prevent these types of things. And the swing, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the torque in the back. You look back in the days like Sam Snead. I mean, the guys at Tiger Woods, that back is just, he's like 360 degrees. Yeah, they're, they're trying to, I mean, most of it should probably be happening at the hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, this is also someone in the case of my patient, we're looking at an amateur, right? So right. they don't have right. that perfect mechanics, nor can we really, you know, compare him to Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they he n- may not necessarily have that optimal body frame that allows him to completely string, uh, swing through his hips. And maybe there is something going on in the low back. But he definitely, it's funny because the initial point when it got really bad did not happen uh, during golf. It was actually one morning when he woke up and he bent over uh, to put on his socks and coughed at that point that's when it kind of happened and and a lot of the times people will assume that that's 
the cause of it, but really right. that's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. There's right. something going on there, and it takes one uh, incident to just completely set it off and make it uh, aware to the person. Well, it's something we haven't really talked about uh, on a show yet, and that is where you play what your what your your clinic does post surgery, as a you know as opposed to post accident or car accident or something like that. What do you do post surgery for a guy? They got to be very delicate, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on the area of the body that the person's having surgery on. Today, we have uh, Dr. Manoj Bergava, who's an orthopedic surgeon uh, at Etobicoke General Hospital here, and I brought him on specifically for this reason uh, to speak about some, you know, the clinical indications of when surgery is really relevant. There's a lot of things, and I think a lot of misconceptions in the public where people don't really understand what they should be doing leading up to surgery, the things that they should do after the surgery, if it's even a good idea to go for surgery. Uh, And so there's so many things surrounding surgery that I felt, you know, with our show and what we're trying to do with educating listeners, that it would be a good idea to have someone who's an expert in this field to comment on some of these things. The number is one 855 Dr. Lou and info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Bargava, welcome to the show for the first time. I'm sure you'll be uh, back after this. So uh, give us a little background uh, where you come from, your background. Uh, I, as, uh, as Luigi was pointing out, uh, I am an orthopedic surgeon at Etobicoke General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, my focus is primarily knee and shoulder surgery. Um, but um, as a general orthopedic surgeon, uh, you tend to see all of these things. Yeah. A joint similar in that, in that way as far as the surgery is uh, concerned? Uh, it depends. I mean, indications for surgery will be very dependent on several factors, including the joint that's affected, age, expectation of the patient, uh, what their condition is before, what their condition is after. Uh, Dr. Gavin, one thing that I've talked about oftentimes with, uh, with surgery is a lot of times people, and I'm sure you've had this as much as I've had it, and I know we've had uh, you know common patients that we've dealt with uh, that we've even sent to you for when they need surgery, but a lot of people assume that pain means that if they have surgery, it will get rid of the pain. And I, and I know you and I have discussed before that it should really be based more on function than pain levels because of how subjective it is. Is there? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you see that all the time. Patient expectation, uh, and and to some degree, the referring doctor may have the same expectation that hmm. this patient has severe pain, therefore that person needs to have surgery right away. Mm-hmm. And that perception may be there by the family doctor, that perception may be there by the patient, and I may be the first one to tell them that, look, you know, hold on, you got to take a step back here. Um, you're not moving your shoulder, and you haven't been moving your shoulder for the last six months because of the pain. So from a surgery standpoint, what what can you expect? You've mm-hmm. had a shoulder that's not been moving for six months, haven't been doing much with that shoulder. The strength is going to be, it's going to be weak. And to suddenly perform surgery on that shoulder, there's no expectation. There's no way that that shoulder is going to function properly. Right. right. The same would apply... I would say to most knee injuries as well, mm-hmm. right? So the you have to dial people back that the that surprisingly the issue is you got to manage your pain better. You got to get better pain control first, uh, then you can start to rehab it. Then surgery would have a role. We'll take a, a short break, guys. Lots more to go here. One eight five 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 five. Doctor Lou is the number. The email is info at paincarecanada. The Doctor Pain Show rolls on Talk Radio AM six forty. Dr. Payne Show, number one eight five 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 five. Dr. Lou and info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Menos Bargava is here, orthopedic surgeon. Uh, Dr. Lou, so we got a lot of stuff to get through, yeah? 
Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about with the importance, and Dr. Bergava was touching on this uh, before we went to break, where he was speaking about, uh, you know, the example of a patient that's never moved their shoulder and then is going and wanting to do surgery. A lot of us are very common. Uh, we understand the term rehabilitation following surgery, mm-hmm. uh, and very little of us have actually heard about prehabilitation, which is actually doing the right things leading up to surgery, where you can actually get your body healthy in order to have better outcomes. The reality about prognosis when you look at prognosis for anything the things that you can do that would improve your prognosis are definitely going to be better for outcomes following the surgery so even when we've had patients that we know are going for surgery we are still providing care for them in order to do this prehabilitation getting them stronger getting them healthier good blood circulation because all of those things are going to help to uh following the surgery once the person's done. And I'm sure Dr. Bergava uh, sees this all the time in practice where uh, before surgery, I'm sure you've seen outcomes with patients who have done stuff before versus those who have not tend to have better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, it applies to every, every joint that that you talk about. So you'll have a patient have a soccer injury, have an ACL tear in their knee, and one patient will be walking on that leg a week later and there are other patients that come into the office three, four months later still on crutches. Mm-hmm. That patient that's still on crutches is going to obviously have weakness of the muscle. Right. And one facet that may be that, you know, th- this is a per- uh, that second patient may be someone who, whatever level of pain that person experiences, his, his mindset is, I should not be doing anything that's going to increase this pain. Yeah. And they're... Their, their focus then becomes the pain, which then really, really interferes with function of that limb. Yeah. So one of the things, and we talk about this uh, all the time, and, and Dr. Bergav is touching on this, is when we look at prognosis and we look at people's disposition, mm-hmm. what he's touching on is actually what we call fear avoidance behavior. So oftentimes we do a lot of education towards teaching people that hurt doesn't always equal harm. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of times, let's take the example of something like a disc herniation, where people say, you know what, I just want to sit down because it hurts when I do everything, not realizing when you look at the actual actual anatomy of the back, that that seated posture, that 90 degree posture in the low back actually can sometimes exacerbate uh, the actual disc herniation. And so there's not necessarily a lot of hurt going on uh, in that scenario, but the harm that's being done to that person is is a lot versus then you get them to do things like McKenzie extension protocol, which gets them to do certain maneuvers to reposition uh, the herniation. And people will complain about that there's pain while they do it. But that pain doesn't necessarily equal harm. Right. It's a hurt. It's kind of like working out, right? You work out, you have a certain level of soreness after, but that's because you're inducing an effect. So, and the average person doesn't understand hurt versus harm. This is why it's so important and why I'm doing what I'm doing to always have a good team of healthcare professionals around you. And one of the biggest things, part of prehabilitation and rehabilitation, uh, when it's a patient before they would see Dr. Bergavin, they would see someone like myself, is also this education component where you teach people the difference between hurt and harm and that not everything that hurts is necessarily harmful and not everything that doesn't hurt is not harmful. And right. so it's not it's not just equal in that regard. one 855 doctor Lou and info at paincare.com. Canada.com to send an email. Dr. Bargava, you must see that. I guess it's, it's not, uh, you know, every case is not the same, but if you'll see one person walk in, similar surgery on a knee, say, one person is 60 pounds overweight, reasonably sedentary. The next person comes in, they're a track athlete, take care of themselves, heeding your advice. You can almost guess which one's going to be back on their feet quicker. They should Absolutely. be, right? Absolutely. Right. You can almost pin 
uh, patient's outcome when they walk in the door. Now, <laughs> no now things will change, and yep. there's there's lots of people that will surprise you either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to someone who is not working, has never worked out, mm-hmm. right? That, that person doesn't really understand what muscle pain should be when right. you properly exercise, right? Yep. And you, how does that, how do you explain to that person that, you know, you got to build up that muscle? Well, they've never done it before. The second that they start to build it up, on top of the fact that they had a recent knee injury, the, the, the second that they try to build it up, they get this pain that you and I would understand is normal, but that person doesn't understand it, so they stop doing it. That's right, yeah. I love that. If I go to the gym and don't get that pain the next day, I'm ticked off. But that's because you're, pain, but you're right? used to it. Yeah. You have to be used to it. You have to understand, and most athletes understand um, good pain versus bad pain. They right. understand what, uh, what pain they can work through and play through yeah versus what they should not. Right. One of the other things too, and and I agree with Dr. Bergava about the outcomes in that scenario, you can almost pinpoint that that athlete is going to be the one that recovers quicker. But sometimes, and I'm sure Dr. Bergava has seen this, the harder thing with athletes is sometimes rest is an important component of the healing process. And athletes tend to be the harder people to try to get them to rest because the last thing they want to do is stop the sport that they're part of. And, you know, and, and we, we, when we, prescribe rest we usually prescribe active rest where we still want them doing something but they function at such a high level that if you're not getting them to perform at that high level they feel like they're doing nothing and a lot of the times that i've seen that athletes don't get better is not because of anything besides the fact that they don't know how to rest properly would you right. agree on that absolutely yeah you know you mentioned yeah. that too in past shows that active rest is you know rest isn't you know lying in bed with a with a blanket in a stephen king book it's actually doing something but yeah. just not you know Taxing yourself we've to had, some degree. We've had people that were treating for shoulder pain or whatever. That doesn't mean you can't be on a treadmill going for a 20-minute right. walk, keeping your circulation up, right? There's still things that you can do. You may need to rest the area of the body. Even with knee surgeries, and I'm sure Dr. Bergava, again, agrees with this, is a lot of the times maybe we don't want them running, we don't want them in their activity. But you know what? Riding the bike has good outcomes uh, at a low, moderate intensity for knee pain and, and post-knee surgery. It's amazing. It's like going for a job before surgery, you're going to have your resume in order and do, you'll give yourself the best shot. Why people don't heed advice all the time to get themselves in some moderate shape before going through this yeah. makes no sense, right? Yeah. You're helping yourself in the long run. Yeah, for sure. We'll take That's a sure. short break, guys. one 855 Dr. Lou and info at paincarecanada.com. This is the Dr. Pain Show. It's right here, Talk Radio, AM 640. The number one eight five 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 Doctor Lou and info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Bargava's here, uh, orthopedic surgeon for the remainder of the show. Good to have your knowledge here, sir. And uh, we want to talk about imaging now. We uh, we touched on this, I think, on our last show, right? Yeah, on our last show, we were talking about the correlation between imaging and clinical findings, and and I was making the comment about uh, some research around, for example, x-rays of the low back, that Mm -hmm. there's a 50-50 correlation. And it's so very important that the symptoms that the person has are correlated with what's been seen on imaging. A lot of the times with the primary contact with a lot of these pain syndromes uh, that aren't understood very well by family doctors, they're often given these wastebasket terms for their pain, like, you know, you have degenerative disc disease and, and that's why you have low back pain. And that's not always the cause. I'm not suggesting that it's never the cause, but most of the time it's not. And so you have to correlate the findings. And I know Dr. Bergava, one of the areas that he operates most on is the shoulder. And that's another big area where I'm sure you've seen tons of patients that have something that they've seen on imaging because it's an incidental finding and they determine and their family doctor, whomever sent them to you determines that that was the cause of the pain, but it's not always. Right. The, um, I mean, a very common pattern is a referral from someone 
um, regarding shoulder pain. And almost the first question that, I, that I'll ask someone is, well, point where the pain is. And they're usually pointing to the area between the neck and the shoulder, like over the trapezius. Right. And um, what that prompts is that the family doctor either orders an ultrasound or an MRI, and the MRI shows something in the shoulder. The problem is that something in the shoulder is very common. Something like a partial rotator cuff tear is very common. And a large, well, a certain percentage of the population without any shoulder symptoms will have those findings. And it means nothing. Right. Yeah. And the the role of a of a good treater or a good surgeon is to distinguish that mm-hmm. from the per- So my role essentially is to figure out who's going to benefit from surgery and who's not. Right. How do you and, navigate that minefield if it's actually well, here, but everyone's showing a shoulder tear? Well. I mean, then then it comes to you take a history, so they keep pointing to this is where the pain is, and they don't necessarily have all the characteristic findings of what a typical patient with a shoulder, like a rotator cuff tear, will, will present with. The other issue is the physical examination will not correlate mm. with what a typical rotator cuff tear patient will present like. Yeah. So you've got all those findings together. It would be a disaster to operate on that guy's shoulder, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, and hopefully, um, a good surgeon will be able to distinguish those patients. And I think that's the basis of good surgery is good patient selection. Figure out who you should operate on and who you should not, who you will make better and who you will not. Right. And don't touch that person who you won't. I, I've often on this show, Dr. Bergava talked about, um, you know, when we've talked about degeneration in joints, I've always uh, had the analogy of it's gray hair, the skeleton, that a lot of the times this is just wear and tear on the body. Would you agree that something like a partial tear in the rotator cuff muscles is oftentimes the same thing where it's just wear and tear? It, yeah, oftentimes just wear and tear and a lot of times not symptomatic. Right. So fixing that will not alleviate that person's trap pain, tra- right. that tra- trapezial pain. Yeah. Right? It's it's a a big thing that we tend to see in practice. See, we're seeing patients that are not educated in anatomy, and and it's incredible how many people come in and say my shoulder hurts. And so, as a clinician, I'm sitting there thinking of the glenohumeral joint, the proper glenohumeral mm-hmm. joint. But as Doctor Bergava is alluding to, they'll point to the area between the neck and kind of the upper back. Well, that's more of a neck and upper back complaint. That's not that's a true shoulder, shoulder complaint. And we see the same things with hips, where people come in and say my hips killing me, and then what they really mean by their hip is kind of their sacroiliac joint area. So one of the first things as a clinician that I always do when I ask someone what brings you in and they'll say something like shoulder pain, my next question is always point to it because I want to know how they determine what they determine right. to be the shoulder or what they determine to be the hip because then right away I could say okay well we're not actually dealing with the shoulder what we're actually dealing with here uh, is the upper back or the SI joint and the treatment indications uh, are going to be different in that regard it's funny you mentioned the hip and the shoulder together and having Dr. Bagava here we've, we've talked about how weird a joint that one is just on its own it's like no other joint yeah. in the body right one of one of the things when we've seen things like partial tears and I agree with Dr. Bergava that a lot of the times it's not the actual cause of the pain. Um, one of the things with the way the the glenohumeral joint sits and the muscles is all predetermined by the way the scapula sits on the rib cage. Right. And so a lot of what we do from a rehabilitation standpoint and a prehab standpoint is fixing the dynamics and the function of getting people to have that shoulder uh, that shoulder girdle, the, the actual scapula on the rib cage, sitting in an optimal scenario where you start to eliminate pressure 
off of certain structures because a lot of the times that's what's actually causing the pain is the fact that there's not optimal function and these these structures are being strained in some way and if you can change the functional component and rehab it the right way then a lot of those symptoms start to disappear would you agree with that absolutely yeah, yeah. We like to, uh, we'll take a short break, guys, sure. before we get into another one. We like to also boast as well free consultations. If any of this is uh, is ringing true with you, the number is one 855 doctor Lou. You want to go see him as soon as you can. Info at paincarecanada.com is the email. Lots more of the show, the Dr. Payne Show, coming right up on Talk Radio, AM 640. That number is one 855 doctor Lou. D-R-L-O-U, info at paincarecanada.com. For an email, Dr. Bhargava is here, orthopedic surgeon at uh, EGH, Etobicoke General Hospital. You think I need the name? Who, unless you live in the neighborhood, yeah, you don't would know say it. EGH, yeah, right? Yeah, Just yeah. gave myself away big time. <laughs> sure. So we're talking about uh, we're talking about diagnosis and pain and treatment and all that stuff. So where, uh, where are we going to go now? Yeah, one of the things that I think is important too is uh, something that I always say is that treatment helps to determine diagnosis. What I mean by that is after I've had a patient and I've gone through a history and an assessment with them and I determine a diagnosis, that diagnosis is going to help me to determine what my plan of management is. So what are the treatment things that I'm going to do to help this patient? What I always like to do is I always like to reassess and determine are people actually getting better? Because if what I'm subscribing for that treatment is not actually working, then that's likely telling me that my diagnosis is probably wrong and I have to rethink my diagnosis. This is where a good clinician never comes up with an absolute diagnosis, but where where I always talk to my patients, I say, here's your most likely diagnosis and here's what we call some differentials. So some other things that it could be, but based on what you see today, and the, the reality is things are always evolving. When I see a patient, it may not have evolved 100% already. I may be seeing that person at, you know, it's this pathology's only evolved 50% and it may seem like something else, but really it's something else. And so treatment does help to determine proper diagnosis. And this is where what's so important with good clinics is making sure that you have somebody who isn't just dismissing it and, and, you know, after six treatments saying, yeah, well, I'm no better. Yeah, I know it's okay. Another six treatments, you'll get better. That's that's the wrong approach. You have to be reassessing people to determine is what you're doing working? And if it's not working, what do you do in order to get this person better? And this is where, like I have a relationship with Dr. Bergava. When I, there are patients that do need surgery and that's when they would go to someone like Dr. Bergava. But I also know Dr. Bergava with injections, as I'm talking about treatment, helps to determine diagnosis. Sometimes certain types of injections can also help you to determine uh, the proper diagnosis or who would be a good candidate for surgery. Yeah, I think I think what patients need to understand is that uh, pain is difficult to diagnose. And even though I'm a specialist, I, 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 I shouldn't be embarrassed to tell people that I may not know where your pain is coming from. And they may look at you like, how, how come you don't know? So I use the analogy, well, when you have a heart attack, you get pain going down into your left hand or left arm. Does that make any sense? And the answer is no. No. Yeah. So then why should pain necessarily make sense? That's because right. you're pointing to this is where your pain is coming from. Uh, it may not be. That mm-hmm. may not be the source of the pain. So getting back to that conversation, the history is important in determining where the pain is coming from. Physical examination, certain special tests will point to whether it's this or whether it's that. And then sometimes if you're still not sure, an injection with uh, pure lidocaine, which is just an, uh, um, an anesthetic, will help. So mm-hmm. it's it's akin to going to the dentist and saying that my 
my tooth hurts, and if the if the dentist injects the tooth and still the pain continues, then guess what? That's not where the pain is coming from. That's right. Yeah. And on the other hand, if your pain is is gone after that injection, then most likely that is where your pain is coming from. So I will use in certain patients an injection to in and around the shoulder joint to figure out whether the pain is coming from the shoulder joint or from the subacromial space, which is where the rotator cuff lives. And sometimes it may be both. And right. sometimes it may be one or the other. And the principle of surgery is I don't want to I don't want to operate on an area that I don't need to because that's going to lead to more problems. Problems, yeah. So if I can say that, you know, it's your subacromial space, the rotator cuff where the problem is, I don't have to do much within your shoulder joint itself. Right. It's amazing. Or, you know, anybody who's been by your clinic or maybe maybe your office, Dr. Brigava, has seen one of those charts on the wall of a human body with the nervous system laid out there. I mean, it's like a very elaborate subway system. Oh, yeah. Not the one we have in this city, but one that no, actually no, no, works. No, that's, that's a little too <laughs> So it, it's not a surprise that if I got pain here, it might yeah. be coming from my knee. Yeah. Right? Well, well, I mean, I wouldn't versa, go right? that far. We definitely look at organic versus non-organic right. causes of pain. And actually, sometimes when we've talked about the psychological aspect of pain and we'll get a patient and I'll and I'll see patients all the time that say, yeah, I have sh right shoulder pain, but it starts in my left knee. Well, now we go into inorganic types mm -hmm. of structures because. Yes, it's related, but it's not related in a in a way that would make clinical sense. Right. And so now you start to consider the psychosocial aspect of pain and how much of a chronic component there is that may be supratentorial, where it's being caused from the brain. But when you definitely look at organic uh, causes of pain. And we've talked about this with regards to shoulder pain, visceral referral, right? Gallbladders can cause uh, referral patterns into the upper shoulder. Wow, really? Liver yeah. can cause some referral pattern into the upper shoulders. Uh, neck issues can cause some referral into certain areas of the shoulder. And we touched on this last week on the importance of a good clinician, understanding anatomy, physiology, pathology, and being able to hear signs and symptoms. And that will start to point you in the right direction of, okay, what are we dealing with? And one of the very important things with the physical exam component. Uh, and when I do an orthopedic exam or when Dr. Bergava does an orthopedic exam, when we're going through range of motion, orthopedic testing, et cetera, et cetera, palpation, and we're not able to elicit pain in that, in, in the pain, mm -hmm. especially the pain that they're describing. One right. of the important things is asking a person, is this the pain you're complaining about? Because a lot of things that we do are provocative tests. They hurt. But is it the pain that you're feeling? If you're not able to provoke that pain that they feel, well, then it may be coming from somewhere else that may be a little more distant to the area of the complaint. There's so much work behind it before you get to the actual root cause. It, it's, right? it's, I mean, we're at the end of the day, I think it's like being a detective. Would you agree, Dr. Bergavin? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are straightforward, but there are things that are complex, and you have to pay attention and try and figure it out. Yeah, especially, I mean, you walk a thin line, especially what you do. You're actually, your surgery, you're opening people up, so you've got to be doubly sure. It's, it's, yeah, it's, amazing. I th it's amazing. I think one of the things that Dr. Bergava touched on, and that's very important, is the progression through treatment should always, in my opinion, and I'm sure he would agree, go from minimally invasive to full invasive, right? And that's kind of what he's talking about with the injections. Before you go to surgery, why not do something that's a little less invasive? And before you go that, why not try some rehab, some stuff, and see if you can get it better without being overly invasive? Because a lot of problems and we'll touch on this when we come back from the break, that there are complications that can occur after surgery. We'll do that. one 855 Dr. Lou is the number. one 855 Dr. Lou. D-R-L-O-U. And info at paincarecanada.com. The Dr. Pain Show rolls on the talk radio, AM640. The number is one 855 Dr. Lou. Info at paincarecanada.com. Free consultation. You have pain, you have concerns, go see Dr. Lou and get a hold of the folks uh, in his clinic. We were talking about the progression of pain and as it goes in the diagnosis and funny where it comes from before Yeah, and, and we started to touch on um, when you do have something like this, the importance and 
you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of times people will have an injury, they'll go to their family doctor, and immediately they're sent to an orthopedic surgeon, something like a shoulder pain. And they haven't tried anything before that point. I mean, we've had it a bunch of times on this show where we've had, uh, you know, callers call in and tell us about something. And my next question is, what have you done? And and they're, they've been sent for surgery. And it's like, well, what have you done before this? Nothing. Yeah. Well, there should be things that a checklist that you go through, because there's a lot of things that you can do before you get to surgery. And Again, that's how you determine is surgery going to be something that's absolutely essential or not. And so going through those less minimally invasive things uh, will prevent you from getting there. And I think mm-hmm. most people, and especially in today's day and age, and I'm sure Dr. Bergava agrees with this, if it's if surgery is something that you can avoid, it's probably not a bad thing uh, or at least delay it, right? Because there are some times where maybe someone may need it in 10 years and i know especially something like a knee replacement yeah. the longer you can delay that the better no one's suggesting that you're not going to need it but there's also a certain lifespan that that knee replacement has so if you can delay its uh introduction into your body well then it'll last longer would you agree yeah i mean i think i think this uh, the logic here is um surgery should be used as a last resort right and particularly in orthopedic surgery None of this stuff is life-threatening, so none of it needs to be dealt with urgent. Well, there, there are some life-threatening things. Yeah. But we're talking about elective surgery, surgery. here. It, it's, always, it's always elective, and people have to decide for themselves. So I think you need to start with conservative treatment first. When that conservative treatment, and that can be steps A, B, and C, mm-hmm. when that conservative treatment doesn't work, then surgery has its role. Right. Let's talk about after the surgery a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen... Uh, lots of people post-surgery, and I guess it does really depend, as Dr. Bergava said earlier in the show, uh, it does very much depend on the area that they had surgery and what are the things that they're going to be doing. Um, maybe, Dr. Bergava, you can touch on what are some of, because usually once they get into my office, it's pretty easy for me to tell them what to do. What I've seen in practice is people are often confused what to do short-term before they come to see me so that, you know, three or four days after the surgery, what are some of the right things that they could be doing? So I, I think, again, it depends somewhat on the joint, but the simple things being that a few days after surgery, you need to control pain, you need to control swelling, um, and you have to pay attention to your doctor's instruction about whether you're supposed to put weight on the limb or not. But, you know, simple icing um, would be helpful. One should expect that over the first couple of days after surgery, your pain may actually increase because the swelling is going to increase mm-hmm. uh, 24, 48 hours after surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then the appropriate use of physiotherapy afterwards will again depend on the type of surgery and what your surgeon recommends. Yeah, for sure. One of the important things too, and I guess we should, uh, I think it's important for our listeners to know this. I've had uh, some patients that, oddly enough, uh, go for some type of surgery, and what they end up sustaining after uh, is frostbite from misusing ice. Um, and so, you know, we do try to make ice is not something that you should just be putting on there indefinitely. Uh, there needs to be a controlled manner of it. Usually we'll recommend right. 10 minutes on 10 minutes off followed by 10 minutes back on and trying to limit that to a few times a day because again, prolonged exposure with that ice can cause frostbite. And that's not good for, for any area. I, I know what you're right. saying, cause how many people have, you know, taken a frozen bag of peas and watched an entire season of Sopranos with a thing on their knee. Yeah. Like you got to take that off once in a I, while. right? I, you'll be surprised. I, I mean, when I first started practicing and I know going through school, we learned about this where it was like, you know, properly educate your patients on proper use of ice. And I sat there and I remember sitting in class thinking who's actually going to cause frostbite to themselves. Right. 
but the amount of people that I've seen that have actually caused frostbite, it's incredible. It's like, wow, like how did you, how long, I always ask like, how long was the ice on? And they always try to downplay it and say yeah. only 10 minutes. Well, no, clearly yeah. it wasn't only well, one 10 in, minutes. One important thing after surgery is sometimes we patients have, have blocks done by right. the anesthetist. So that area is numb. So they don't actually right. ah, sense the yep. injury that's coming on from, from too much use of the ice. There are newer things that hopefully will prevent those type of things, things that include compression yeah. along with the icing that will reduce the swelling as well and help the pain as well. Yeah, for sure. Frostbite in your own house, it's such a Canadian thing to do. It's, yeah, they, you know, yeah, yeah it if you're going to do it anywhere like here in Toronto, it's the time to do it. The number is one 855 Info at com. Dr. Bagav, you've seen it. How long have you been, how long have you been doing knee and shoulder uh, 14, surgeries? For? 14, 15 years. So I'll take it back 15 years. Have you noticed a difference in the cause is it an activity level? Is it younger kids doing more dangerous stuff, or is it just has it changed at all? No, I think it definitely has changed. Um, uh, most avid athletes are are certainly training year round, so the natural rest that happened to say a baseball player winter would be off and they wouldn't be doing that stuff um, has changed. So right. people are playing base, baseball year round or playing hockey year round, and you never give that area rest. So mm-hmm. I think you are seeing increase in in particularly young athletes, any pick any sport, there's certainly more injury, uh, I think, these days. It seems like, you know, stronger, faster, higher. It's the old Olympic thing. And it is like with every sport, people are getting more intense. It's getting tougher. Yeah. It's getting faster, right? That's going to wear on joints. We see in practice a lot of uh, elite athletes. And one of the things that we're often doing um, with the prehab and f- kind of from a wellness perspective is also giving them advice. You look at one of the important things to do with assessments, and we've talked about this with regards to workplace and functional assessments, what people have to do in order to turn, return to work. But one of the things we do at the clinic as well is we assess people and the specific functions. So one of the, an example is, you know, if you're a basketball player and ACL injuries are common or soccer or whatever it may be, uh, the ACL just basically prevents the tibia from going forward on the femur. Another structure that does the same thing are the hamstring muscles. So if you have a, a player uh, that, you know, does these types of activities, well, letting them know that having a, a strong, healthy hamstring is going to be just as important to uh, eliminating an ACL issue is important. And then they can work on these things and they can build up certain structures in their body so that they can minimize the risk of injury. Um, do you agree with that, Dr. Bergabin? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there is some evidence that uh, certain training programs will decrease the risk of ACL surgery, uh, ACL tears, uh, particularly in, in girls. So girls oh, certainly hmm. have a higher propensity for ACL tears uh, than boys do. I take care of a lot of soccer players, and the vast majority of the players that I operate on are girls. Would you say that um, that may be due to the tendency for women and girls to have more laxity in their joints they tend to have you know longer muscles and they tend to be more lax. people have looked at i mean it may be a number of factors um uh muscle strength and more particularly the ratio of strength between quadriceps and hamstring may not be ideal may be different than boys the way that boys jump and land compared to the way girls jump and land is different right um it may have to do something with where they are in their menstrual cycle. So right. certain times hormones may be mm-hmm. different and that may be making you more vulnerable yeah. to injury. So it's it there there certainly is a higher risk mm-hmm. and those ri- why those risks are have not necessarily been figured out. One eight five 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 Doctor Lou is the number info at paincarecanada.com. Lots more coming up. Stick around. It's the Doctor Pain Show. 
on Talk Radio, AM 640. one 855 doctor and info at You got problems, pain, issues, free consultations, get a hold of, uh, of Dr. Lou. Yeah, uh, before we went to break, we were talking about Dr. Bergava was giving us uh, um, some indications that in uh, young females uh, tend to have more knee injuries. One of the things that we've also seen in practice when you look at things like patellofemoral pain syndrome, uh, which the layman's term is runner's knee, they do tend to be more common in females. One of the other reasons that that's so is when you look at the pelvis of a male and female, obviously females uh, give birth, therefore they have wider pelvises. And that changes what's called the Q angle on the patella, and that causes a tracking issue oftentimes. So it's very common for uh, women, and I would agree with Dr. Bergava, that they do tend to be a little more predisposed um, to these types of of issues in the knees. And I mean, when you look at what evidence-based care is, you're looking at the best available research, what um, the clinician has seen in practice, what they deem to be uh, good stuff, and also what the patient wants. So a lot of these things, I mean, our clinical experience and what we see um, helps us a lot to determine and give good advice to people on what they can do and who may be more predisposed to something versus another person. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, a very common referral for me will be uh, anterior knee pain, pain in the front of the knee. Um, and it, typically it is it is young women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, usually not with an injury. And it's very, very typical pattern. So pain in the front of the knee, what is it usually with? Going up or down the stairs, squatting, kneeling, yeah. getting out of the low chair, uh, usually no swelling, usually no locking, no no catching or anything like that. Yeah. And it's it's really a good news, bad news uh, scenario because surgical treatment for that problem is very difficult mm-hmm. and doesn't have great results. So most, most uh, surgeons really try to stay away from operating on that patient. The only kind of patient you may operate on is someone who's had this for years and years and years and right. can't get rid of it. And hopefully there's some other pathology involved that you may be able to fix. Right. Um, but the good news for this story is if they do good rehabilitation, um, seeing someone good that teaches them um, exercises to do to keep the quad strong, especially the VMO yeah. strong, um, it will make a difference. Yeah. And I almost guarantee people that if you do this and if you do it not for a few weeks, but if you do this religiously for four to six months, it will make a difference. It may not get rid of all of your pain, but it will make a difference. Yeah. See, that's an interesting angle where the surgeon is now referring back to you. So how would you handle that type of injury? Yeah, exactly. As Dr. Bergava is saying, when we get these people, and I kid, kid you not have had hundreds of people with this type of, of pathology going on when you look at uh, patellofemoral pain. And as Dr. Bergava said, the most important thing to do in that regard is rehabilitating the vastus medialis, which is the more medial of the quadricep muscles because it's the primary stabilizer of the knee. And oftentimes when we see these patients, see what's happening in the knee is kind of a constant tug of war between front and back and side to side. And what you'll see is the outside of the leg tends to be very tight uh, and the inside, that vastus medialis, develops weakness. So a lot of our treatment is tailored towards... um, loosening up the outer muscles, the muscles on the outside of the leg, and doing things to strengthen Mm -hmm. the vastus medialis. And yeah, these are definitely cases. I always tell people the same thing that Dr. Bergava said. If you are religious with the very simple exercises that are needed to get this better, most people do get significant improvement. And something that Dr. Bergava just touched on that I've now touched on, you know, for months now on this show is the reality of pain management. Nothing is ever 
safe that you can say, I've gotten rid of it. It's gone forever. Pain-free, done. Yeah, right. there's. it's very rare to actually have any cures in healthcare, uh, and especially with pain. And for whatever reason, when it comes to pain management, people do seem to think that there should be a cure, but the reality is there isn't. So someone who's now suffered that type of knee pain once before is likely to experience it again. The difference with that second time is hopefully you'll have better tools available to you. You'll be able to catch it earlier and do the interventions that you've already been taught in order to minimize its exacerbation. You're talking talking about balance. And I I always like to use a car analogy there. So if you buy a new car, you buy new tires on your car and your car's out of alignment and it's pulling over to the right. If you don't do something, guess what's going to happen? The tread on the right Mm -hmm. side is going to wear out. Right. So the same thing applies to the knee. The, the vastus medialis is weak, the, the muscles on the inside of the knee are weak, and the muscles on the outside are tight. Yeah. So what's happening is your kneecap is getting pulled over, and the Q angles you were talking about may contribute to that. So it's getting pulled over to the outside. Yep. So it's the same thing. It's, being, it's out of alignment, and unless you, unless you fix that problem by strengthening the medial side, um, you're going to wear out the tread, in this case yep. cartilage, mm-hmm on the lateral side of your knee, yeah, right? Lateral sure. side under, under, under your patella. Yeah, and the most common uh, type of pain symptom that you'll hear with this type of pathology is, uh, you know, anterior knee pain tends to be along the kneecap on either side. Right. Things like, yes, going up and down the stairs. Anytime where the, the patella would actually have to do some type of tracking. Uh, one of the other more common signs as well is what's called moviegoer signs. So mm-hmm. where you're sitting and you feel like you have to kick your leg out. Uh, also, if you are a runner like this, it's called runner's knee because of how much more prevalent it is to someone who runs because obviously there's a lot of tracking of the patella uh, going on. But yeah, it's definitely something. I think the point of what we're trying to get across uh, today is that surgery is absolute, absolutely has a role to play in pain management. Uh, and the the bigger thing here is trying to do things to avoid it. Uh, and if you can avoid it, great. If you can't, then it may play a mm-hmm. role. And also doing the right things leading up and following that surgery uh, in order to get better. And I mean, for people who are listening out there, uh, they may have to go for surgery or are thinking about it. As we've said before, free consultations. You can give me a call. You can come see me at the office. We can review the case uh, and we can make some simple recommendations and see if there's anything else that could be done. And this is a conversation, again, that I will have with that treating surgeon as well. I'm not there to try to tell people don't do it. Uh, It's just, you know, sometimes, and Dr. Bergava, do you agree that when you have uh, a hammer, everything's a nail? And, you know, when you're limited in what you do, and if, same as me, I'm I'm going to be more biased to my treatment interventions as much as a surgeon's going to be more biased towards his treatment his or her treatment interventions. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, I think I think we all have to keep an open mind to other forms of treatment that are available. And, For sure. And I hope your you know whoever is treating, I hope your surgeon thinks the same way because ultimately, the risks associated with surgery are there. Yeah. So there are really relatively few risks associated with the conservative treatments. Yep, for sure. And this is, you know, again, something I've said a ton of times. Yeah. It's 2016. The important thing for any individual to have is a healthcare team, not just one practitioner that oversees everything about this person. You have to have a team in place uh, that can help you. And yeah, be open to the other forms for sure. of, of therapy that are available that you can try. Uh, that do have good outcomes and do show and do get people better. And you know what? And if it doesn't get you better, then you move on to the other available tools. And, and there's a lot of tools available to try to get you better. Got to thank Dr. Bergava for uh, sitting in for this hour with the information orthopedic surgeon at Etobicoke General Hospital. And in the meantime, you need to get a hold of 
of Dr. Lou. It is 1-855-55-Dr. Lou, D-R-L-O-U, and emails info at Pain Care Canada. Yeah, we stress the uh, free consultations when you go by the clinic anytime. Until next time, the Dr. Pain Show right here on Talk Radio, AM 640. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.